The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, historian and author Matthew Parker on the British Empire's territorial peak 100 years later. You know, you think of empires, you think of the land empires of Russia, the Romans, the Persians, and they're all sort of contiguous. But Britain wasn't. Their closest allies were the other side of the world in Australia and New Zealand. And it's because it was so global, it just made no strategic sense. And it meant that the different parts of the empire would have different strategic priorities. Lots of the certainties that the empire had been built on, this sort of, you know, manly virtues, all of that was in tatters after the First World War. The idea of white supremacy is a key part of the empire. It justifies it. You know, why, why are we here? Why are we running these people's lives? Because we're better. And that's the excuse to be there and be in charge and ordering people around. Matthew Parker, welcome to Chatter. Great to be here, David. I'm especially glad to talk to you today because we are um, combining two of the things that we love to do on Chatter in our many conversations. One of them is dig into history and find the the lessons of history for today. And you've just written a, a massive work which does that in a in a beautiful way. But we also love to talk about pop culture around national security issues. And those two don't often overlap. But you've also written a book called GoldenEye about Ian Fleming's residence in Jamaica and use that as a window into Jamaican society and politics, as well as into understanding Ian Fleming and the James Bond uh, franchise. So in a sense, you are the perfect guest for this podcast. I'm putting a lot of pressure on you now. I'm I'm delighted to hear it. Yeah. Well, the, the, the key for today is your new book, One Fine Day, uh, which you subtitle Britain's Empire on the Brink. And it is centered around, although not limited to, one day in September 1923. And I'm curious, as an author, you've written several books already, but none of them with a frame like this, none of them with a structure uh, quite like this one. What What drove you to try to look at dozens of places around the world within the British Empire at the time through that lens of one day in 1923. 
Well, I think, uh, you, as you said earlier, I have written, um, this is actually my seventh book, and um, they were all fairly simple narratives. That, you know, you, you start building the Panama Canal, you finish building the Panama Canal, you start a battle, you finish it. Um, and certainly part of the motivation was just wanting to do something a bit different. And sure. I was I was very, very surprised when I discovered that it was only 100 years ago that the British Empire reached its maximum territorial extent on the 29th of September 1923. So that was the sort of the, the pinnacle, the zenith, which is, of course, at the same time, the beginning of the decline. Mm. And one, one thing that I think um, it's really important when looking at the British Empire is understanding just how incredibly varied it is. You've got some places that are deserts, you've got snowy wastes, you've got teeming cities. Um, at the same time, you've got some societies that are basically in the Stone Age and some which are civilizations much older than anything in the West. Right. Um, and by sort of traveling with the rising sun from the Pacific across um, Burma, India, Africa, to, the, to London and the Caribbean, Canada, um, you, that, that contrast, that amazing variety is really foregrounded. Because at one moment you're talking about the Canadian Prime Minister, and another time you're talking about um, someone who is a religious leader in a jungle of Papua, and these events are happening simultaneously. So I think it really, it really hammers home that point about the huge variety, which of course means the incredible danger of generalizing about any of this empire. I'd love to drill down on a few of those issues there. So first, Matthew, where, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Um, well, I was born in El Salvador mm -hmm. and lived there for a couple of years. And then we moved to Sussex in, in southern England. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was seven, my family moved to Norway. Uh, my dad worked for Shell all his life. Um, and so he was posted all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I was a teenager, he was sent to Barbados for four years. Um, and it was a kind of sort of almost at the end of career sort of, you know, thank you very much posting. It was, of, of course, absolutely. There are worse places, yes. There are worse places. So I was actually at boarding school all this time from from a very young age. So I sort mm -hmm. of, I, I experienced it as a holiday. Um, yeah. And for the first few years, you kind of think, absolutely, this is absolutely fantastic. You know, the beach, the rum, the music, the the sunshine, the water sports. But then after a while, you don't get bored of that. But you just sort of look around and, I found myself asking, what is this place? This tiny, <laughs> it's a tiny island, as you probably know, 20 miles by 10 miles. And it's got 200, over 200,000 people living there. Um, you know, it doesn't have any natural resources to speak of, apart from maybe its beaches for tourism. And it's just, it's, it's one of these just sort of counterintuitive places. Yeah. Um, and I was, actually, I was actually looking back over all my books, and they're all really about counterintuitive situations. And Barbados is one. And then, of course, you drill down into the history, and you mm. discover, amazingly, that in the 17th century, this was the most important place in the whole of the world. It was the richest, most important place, exporting more than all of the Northern American colonies combined, um, fought over. It was a, a sort of hinge of history, a cockpit of all the European rivalries. Um, and this is this tiny little place in the middle of the middle of the ocean. Um, and that really interested me in, in mm. imperial history. 
And so I wrote, I wrote um, a book about the building of the Panama Canal, which, of course, the American Canal was built almost entirely by Barbadians. Something like half the working population of Barbados went to Panama to build the canal for Roosevelt. Um, and then I wrote about the, the rise and fall of the sugar empire across the Caribbean. Um, mm-hmm. And it also, the other thing about being a sort of expatriate shell family, there's something quite, sort of looking back at it now, there's something quite sort of neo-colonial about it all. You know, it's mm. the sort of he my dad comes in, he's the boss. At that point they um Shell sponsored the Inter Island cricket match, the, the cricket matches, which is obviously huge in the Caribbean. I don't know if you're a fan at all. Um but he would so so he would be the, the white guy in a suit giving out the sort mm-hmm. of man of the match check, mm-hmm. you know, amongst all the black people. You know, we had maids in we lived in an old plantation house. We had maids in uniforms. And, you know, I was only there for holidays, but I really didn't get to know any black people at all, which is, looking back, is heartbreaking. You know, we'd just hang around with the, the kids of the other expats, all the endless visitors from, from England. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, so it's sort empire's sort of in my blood, and sort of addressing some of those issues is, is, has been a big motivation for writing both about the Caribbean and about the wider empire in this new book. And that does does make sense, uh, having having read your books, because that comes out that contrast between the the British, even even the British, you know, colonial office uh, officials who are there talking about the benefit to the peoples and bringing them up into civilization, but in many cases not really interacting with them on a social level. Uh, that contrast comes out in many ways. Um, but I asked about your background because you mentioned that it was a surprise to you that the territorial peak of the British Empire was uh, around 1923. Um, American education, of course, is is different. And I don't know what education about the empire comes through in a traditional uh, British upbringing. But in our case, I would say probably if you asked 100 Americans on the street, when was the territorial peak of the British Empire? I'm betting most of them would say the 1770s before the American independence. And after that, the British Empire was clearly in decline because America was on the rise. And when you look at world maps and you study the history, you realize, well, that's that's not really the case at all. Uh, it's just a very American point of view that everything revolves around the growth of the United States of America. You tie the 1923 territorial peak of the empire also to the Imperial Conference, which I believe was in the fall of 1923. Is that right? Yeah, on the on the actual day. I tie as much as possible to this actual day, the 29th of September. Right. Talk about that Imperial Conference. Uh, what was it and why was it so telling <laughs> that at this exact moment, when, when the empire is at its peak in, in some ways, not all, that the views being expressed at this conference and the very idea of the empire was changing? Yes. Um, the Imperial conferences happened every sort of two or three years, and they took the form of the um, prime ministers of the dominions, which is basically the white settler-dominated parts of the empire, South Africa, Canada, Newfoundland, which was still separate at that time, um, right. Australia and New Zealand. Um, and after during the First World War, the Indians were invited as well, but only as very junior um sort of members and they would get together and they would sort of there'd be a lot of socializing they would be shown the they would go and see the the, the, the grand fleet um as it sailed past on a sort of parade um and they would sort of discuss issues to do with things like shared foreign policy 
or um, shared economic cooperation, communication. Um, but the one in 23 was different because um, Britain was in a economically in a very bad place, largely as a result of the, the um, huge expense uh, of the First World War and other issues as well. And there had also recently been uh, a, a lot of division between... the. This is the sort of the big white top table of empire, and they were all falling out with each other for several reasons, partly because uh, of Japan and what was perceived as this serious threat from an emerging Japan. And Britain had historically had a treaty with Japan, um, which sort of guaranteed... Um, sort of peace between the two countries. But um, American relations with Japan has, were at an all-time low. There was rivalry over business interests in Siberia. There mm -hmm. were accusations that um, Americans had been inciting revolt in parts of the, the new Japanese empire because Japan was expanding. It had taken on Korea, Taiwan, parts of China um, and um, Siberia. And this was a, a great rivalry. And the other big factor was the extreme... Um, displeasure with which the Japanese leadership saw um, the treatment of Japanese people in America, particularly on the West Coast. There'd been over 100,000 people, Jap Japanese people had migrated to um, California and elsewhere on the West Coast um, between sort of 1901 and 1908 or something like this. And But in 1907, the Asian Exclusion League had been formed um, with a demand to keep uh, America white. Uh, and this is this is by no means unique. Canada, New Zealand, Australia all had these um, overtly racial um, immigration policies. Uh, and this had caused an incredible amount of ill feeling um, and and sort of heightened the rivalry. Um, and anyway, in sort of 1921, Britain was the, the treaty with Japan was due for renewal. And the Americans made it clear that if this went ahead, it would be seen by Washington as an unfriendly act by the British. Right. Um, so, so, the, so the British had to choose: do we um, stay on the same side as? The, do we stay in with the Americans, or do we placate the Japanese? And the the Dominions themselves would split down the middle. Canada obviously wanted friendship with America to continue for obvious strategic reasons. Um, Australia and New Zealand, on the other hand, were the exact opposite. They say if we cancel this treaty with Japan, we are going to be under serious risk of um, being invaded. And there was a sort of, was it paranoia? I suppose you look at the Second World War, perhaps it wasn't. But there was this idea of the sort of the yellow peril um, descending on thinly populated and uh, Australia and New Zealand. And the, the Australians worked out that the Japanese could land an army of about 100,000 um, anywhere on their coast. Uh, I think this is one of those many things, Matthew, that, uh, again, from the American experience, the shadow of the Second World War is so large that, that we forget just how dramatic the the rise of, of Japan was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the, I think the Australian and New Zealand reaction to that is, is very telling of the fact that we may have forgotten that, but it was extremely important to their thinking at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I kind of use that in the book. I use the reader's knowledge. The reader knows that the Japanese, for instance, are going to um, go through Malaya and Singapore like a knife through butter, and that's all going to come crashing down. Um, but I really want to keep the sense of, of concentrating on what people knew at the time. So, for instance, I'll give another example. One of the, one of the, um, the, the surprises at the 1923 Imperial Conference was the first 
time an Irish representative had been there. Yes. Because yes. Ireland was now a dominion and all of the, there'd been a bitter civil war, there'd been a war with the British, all of this was had come to an end. And everyone was congratulating themselves. Oh, at last, this Irish problem that has plagued us for so long, it's all solved. Hooray. And they also, another thing which I thought was quite interesting was um, the, the sort of war planning that sort of goes on at the conference as well. And they, they Britain had set up a 10-year rule, which meant that they didn't anticipate going to war with anyone for 10 years. And the person, the country that they thought they would most likely go to war with was France. And it, it, to the extent that right. in September right. 23, plans started on um, designing a bomber to reach Paris from the south coast mm-hmm. of England. Um, anyway, sort of going back, we're slightly diverting here, going, going back to the, the conference. So, so it goes to the heart of the empire. The empire didn't make strategic sense. You know, you think of empires, you think of the land empires of Russia, the Romans, the Persians, um, they're all sort of contiguous. But Britain wasn't. They, their closest allies were the other side of the world in Australia and New Zealand. And it's because it was so global, it just made no strategic sense. And it meant that the different parts of the empire would have different strategic priorities and would need it's, a different foreign policy and that's exactly what happened with japan and it's not, but it's yeah. not just it's not just foreign policy they can't agree on anything they can't agree mm-hmm. on tariffs because that <laughs> that would cause food in britain to be more expensive um, mm-hmm. all they could agree on all they could agree that was the point that united the empire was shared loyalty to the royal family which at that right. point was the less than charismatic George V and <laughs> his his totally unsuitable, well, unsuitable is, is an understatement, the Prince of Wales, who, who later would become Edward VIII, yeah. uh, the traitor king, as he's now known. Right. Um, so so he's sent off on this, and this is the, something that links the, the different parts of the book together. He's sent off on this world tour, mm-hmm. to, and he's incredibly photogenic. He's called He's called the Prince of Hearts, and basically, women of a certain age all sort of melt with his big, sort of rather sad, vulnerable-looking face. Um, and he, that goes fine in in, the, in Australia and New Zealand, but then he gets Not to India, in India, and <laughs> India it all it all went really badly wrong. Um, right. And again, that just shows the huge differences between the different parts of the empire. So, so no one knew what the empire was for, and also empire had become a sort of dirty word. You know, before in 1914. There's hardly anywhere in the world that isn't part of some empire. There's like 14 empires. First, at the end of the First World War, those are, so many of those have crashed down, you know. And Wilson is Woodrow Wilson, the villain of the piece for many sort of defenders of the, of the British Empire, is talking about self determination. Um, so it seems to everyone that the age of empires is over. It's old fashioned, and there's new political. Um, sort of systems that are more suitable for the modern day, whether it's democracy, mm-hmm. whether it's communism, whether it's fascism, um, but, but, but the nation state rather than empire. Um, yeah. so, so this is why the, 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 these are the cracks that you can see in the foundations. Right. And of course, now we do have the benefit of hindsight of seeing how those cracks expanded into massive fissures that, that define the world today. But as, as you said, at the time, they did not know that. They were struggling with which of these factors matter and which don't. One of the key hinges was, of course, the Great War, the, the First World War itself. 1923, people are still coming to grips with what does this mean? Not so much militarily and politically, although there is some of that, 
But what you explore best, I say, in this book is the cultural and social implications um, that derive from those military and strategic issues, such as Canadians and especially Australians speaking out against supporting relatively small British military efforts in 1922-1923 that 25 years earlier it would have been virtually unthinkable for these people to speak out in the form they came about supporting British foreign policy and 25 years later we would completely take it for granted but the first world war spurred this idea that we in the dominions and territories have contributed so much to this great effort and now London keeps coming back to us asking for more. They want us to send they want us to send our young men to Turkey and and for what? And that that sense is really dramatic to me that the the influence of those contributions to the First World War very much changed their willingness to speak out against some uh, British foreign policy endeavors in the early 1920s. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the Shanak crisis that you refer to in Turkey, when um, it looked like the um, victorious Ataturk um, forces were going to enter the demilitarized zone around the around the Dardanelles, and where a British force was uh, was stationed, and you know, South Africa didn't even bother replying. Um, Canada said. Absolutely, you cannot assume our support. It's a, it's a, it's a, a question for our government and not for you just ordering us to do it from London. And the same in Australia, New Zealand, which is the sort of hyper loyal colony, I'm incredibly dependent on Britain economically. Um, they, 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 lots of people rush to volunteer there, but elsewhere, I mean, it's a huge change, as you say, from 1914, where George V declares war on behalf of the entire empire, and the war had created huge hardship. Um, not just in terms of the, the the huge number of people who were killed or maimed, but also economically as well. It had cost a lot. Everyone was paying huge taxes. Everyone was in debt thanks to this effort. And a lot, of, even even during the war, there were a lot of people, particularly in Australia, where on the left the, the unionists um, would would tell people to to tear up their draft cards and. There were a couple of votes on introducing referendums on introducing conscription in Australia, and both of them were defeated. So the Australians were all volunteers uniquely out of all the Allied forces. Uh, and the same is true in Canada, where um, sort of natural, divi- well, long standing divisions between Francophone and Anglophone communities um, meant that hardly anyone from um, the, the French community volunteered and to serve overseas. And this this deepened divisions as well. And that led to when conscription was eventually introduced in Canada, there were there were riots and people were were killed in Quebec rioting against this this measure. So yeah, everything everything is changed. And it's not just the sort of political, it's also sort of psychological. You know, this 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 was the most traumatic, awful um period in modern history with, with up until that time, uh, and you know, all lots of the certainties that the empire had been built on—the sort of you know manly virtues and um, you know going out into the going out into the empire and imposing your will and your superiority—all of that was was in tatters after the First World War, which had demonstrated, perhaps most importantly, to the colonized 
to the mm-hmm. Indians, to the mm-hmm. Africans, um, that, you know, this, this white superiority um, was, you know, white... What, what what happened to Pax Britannica? What happened to the idea of spreading peace when you can't even control? You know, you Europe, the white the white people effectively have a disastrous civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, so so respect for um, for the the colonial officer and confidence in the colonial officer himself in what he was doing and the values that underpinned the empire were under under serious question, to put it mildly. You start the book uh, after a brief introduction, but the main text of of the book starts with the resident commissioner in one of the places of the world I have known the least about in a place that I think many people will not even have heard of, which is uh, what the British called Ocean Island in the the Pacific Ocean, which metaphorically and perhaps literally is where the the sun would rise on the British Empire being far flung, uh, well past Malaya and India and other possessions. Um, But it has a fascinating story, which I certainly had not heard about before. Talk a little bit about Ocean Island, uh, why it was considered so strategically important to the British, not because of its location as much of what uh, what the island was made of, and how it really, you chose it for a reason to start. And it's not only because of its physical location, it's because it captures so much of this tension between the colonized and the empire at this height in 1923. Well, this is one of the one of my favourite discoveries. One, part of the part of the reason for doing this one day is sort of di- I had to discipline myself. So I would start. I, I would go. For instance, I read hundreds and hundreds of newspapers and magazines, and I went through huge p- piles of paper from the from the old colonial office in the archives um, here in here in London, and. It was fantastic to come across something on the actual day. And one of the things I discovered just in the general correspondence file was um, a letter to the Colonial Office from what was called the the British Phosphate Commission asking for uh, an extra 150 acres of Ocean Island to be given over to their operations. And I thought, what's this about? And then when I discovered it was just sort of i think i say in the book it's sort of kafkaesque it's sort of surreal yes. what 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 happened is um a new zealander back in about 1903 um turned up in ocean island and this is a very isolated place and got there's about 500 people living there um and he discovers that the, almost the entire soil of the island is made of phosphate and this is an incredibly important rare and valuable um, ingredient of fertilizers. Now, what had happened is that Australia and New Zealand had sort of set themselves up. They imagined themselves. Their identity was as the sort of the granaries and the, the sort of the, the food cupboard of the empire. You know, they would ra- raise wheat and sheep and send it to send it to London to the British market. But the problem was that they're not actually very fertile. They're pretty useless as an agrarian idyll. But but so what they need is this phosphate. So what yeah. happened is um, this guy, the, the New Zealander guy, a guy called Albert Ellis, did a deal with the islanders on this island, um, which was sort of risibly unfair for them to start digging out the, the phosphate and shipping it off to factories to be made into into a fertilizer. Uh, and for a while, this all this all seems okay. But then the, then the sort of penny drops both for the islanders and for the resident commissioner who is the who is the sort of the the 
colonial officer's um, person on the spot. So he's not part of the company. He's he's the civil administrator. They realise that what's happening is the actual physical body of the island is being shipped off forever, leaving just a desiccated coral wasteland where nothing's ever going to grow. Yeah. And the islanders are going, well, hold on, we've lived here for like 2,000 years. This is our ancestral home. And you're physically, actually physically removing it. And the the British official finds himself in between these incredibly conflicting interests. The company wants to make money, and um, the wider empire as a whole need the phosphate for, for, for what seems like more important things than just these 500 islanders. Um, but at the same time, the, the British officials can see what's happening. They can see that the islanders are going to be, they're going to have to basically be shipped off somewhere else, um, which they certainly don't want to want that to happen. And some of them actually side with the islanders uh, and they complain to the colonial office, look, you've got to stop this. This is just ridiculous that you're, you know, you're abducting a, a homeland. Um, but they then the, the, the phosphate interest had quite a lot of powerful friends, it would appear, in London. And, and these officers who took the side of the islanders find themselves posted away to, well, the worst place you could go, the Falkland Islands which was the, the empire's most dismal posting. Um, and so there's this, there's this and, and you're right, it sort of sums up a lot of the issues in the rest of the book. They're these incredibly conflicting interests. And often the British colonial official would find himself in an impossible situation where he has to sacrifice either his integrity or his career. Right. What it said to me when, when I, was, I was reading this, and I also got the audiobook and got to hear it, it read, which is a wonderful experience for, for this kind of history as well. What it, what it really told me was something you mentioned earlier in our chat, which is this sense that the empire strategically had begun to make no sense as a cohesive whole, but you could trace back how each step made sense to someone at the time, right? You may be... Aden did not make a lot of sense by itself, but it made sense because of India. Or maybe some places didn't, like Ocean Island, didn't make sense, except that the phosphate was needed for other parts of the empire. So it all fits together. But because of the colonial office and others looking at this from, in a sense, that interrelated perspective, you really did lose the interest of the Banabans, the, the natives who, who resided on this island. And you know, for whom and to whom the rhetoric was being directed of, we are helping you, we are lifting you up into a better civilization by being here as your resident commissioner. And that quite objectively was was not the case when the very island they lived on was being removed. Hold on, in, in some way, in, in, it, it's always more complicated. There's always nuance to, to mm -hmm. this. And in some ways, um, you know, Ocean Island is incredibly dry. And on several occasions, um, you know, people people had turned up. The, the first people in that area were American whalers in the 1820s. So that's the first contact with the outside world that these mm -hmm. remote islands have. Um, and they reported that sometimes they would turn up and that because of the lack of water, half the population had died. Um, and then, yeah. and this happened. This happened yeah. on several occasions. They would have to. They would have desperate measures. They would go out in boats, chasing clouds around the open sea to try to get some fresh water. Um, and when the when the company arrived and started digging the phosphate, they constructed large reservoirs and they set up a desalination plant. 
And subsequent to that, the population rose and rose and rose. So it's never as simple as the sort of the good guys and the bad guys. Um, But what what you say about the how the empire came about in this rather sort of piecemeal way, that that's really the same as I was talking about, about the sort of complexity and the differences between places. Um, I mean, in some cases, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. In some cases, um, the missionaries in Nyasaland, what's now Malawi in Southern Africa, they were they were there. The British weren't there. They were all getting sort of murdered and, and stuff. So the British went in to protect them, and that led to the annexation of that territory. And a, a, a completely different example would be the Pacific that we've been talking about. This is obviously there's a lot of a lot of Pacific islands, um, and what what had happened? The whalers had turned up. They'd brought disease. They'd brought guns uh, and general sort of mayhem. These you know these these guys aren't you know they aren't the most sort of straight and moral people. You know they're adventurers. We've all we've all you know read the read the novels, um, and then other people become sandalwood traders would come and they would cause you know deliberately sort of wipe out an island so that they could have free access to this incredibly valuable wood. So the annexation which happened in the eighteen eighties of those islands was to protect the islanders from the European traders. And the same same with New Zealand, where the the Maoris were were getting wiped out um, and the British annexed it in order to protect those local people. Or that was the the argument. The The one reason that comes up again, again, and again is to stop the French. So many places is to stop those French horrors from from sort of getting one up on us and of course and that was quite a surprise for me i mean i think i understood it at some grand intellectual level about the times uh, knowing the history in europe but when, how it played out with in many cases literally memos being written cables sent in the the, the colonial office or foreign office um memos with companies the newspaper headlines that were being pulled from September 1923, uh, how many times France was was lurking in the background, or in some cases in the foreground, as a as a concern, uh, it was it was fun, I will say, um, to read and to hear as you're telling the story, right? The backstory to September of 1923 of uh, something to do with uh, Gandhi or something to do with Malaya, and then all of a sudden you pull a quote from a newspaper article from that date in 1923, uh, it was, it must have been remarkable once you realize that there was not a literal gold mine, but about as close as you can get to it as a researcher for the amount of things that were telling on that very day to expose these stories for what they were. Yeah, I wonder if, if you picked any day in history, and you could sort of dig, you know, or dig widely enough. I mean, this is news, newspapers are an incredible resource. I mean, this is the, this is newspapers golden moment. It's, radio is in its infancy. There's obviously no telly or internet or anything like that. So new, hundreds of newspapers are being published all, all over the empire. Um, and you can learn so much from them, even the adverts are really interesting. You know, I, I spotted in, in Malaya, that all the adverts for beer were for a Japanese beer, Asahi. And I thought, well, why is this? And then I looked at the trade figures and realized that Japan was actually trading more with Malaya, the British colony, than the British were. The, you know, Malaya is the richest colony in the empire by a, right. by some distance. And they're only 17% of their imports come from Britain. So what's the point of having yeah. that in your empire if they're buying stuff from the Japanese and the Americans, who, of course, are making huge strides in terms of t- um, taking over the commerce of the world? And people... 
people seem to be realizing this in different places, right? I, I seem to recall you found in several different parts of the empire, people were raising this point of, so what exactly is the benefit of being part of this empire now in a way that may have happened before, but probably much less often? Yeah, no, that has been a, there was a debate going on in Britain for a while about, you know, does the empire actually cost more than it than it benefits the the home country and and people took different positions on this um but certainly on on the the sort of the progressive or the la- sort of the labor party and, and uh, as it was at the time they were thinking well actually you know can't we just do we need the land or do we just can we just trade with mm-hmm. people uh, um and certainly the the americans had no problem with you know selling their cars in particular all over the empire much to the sort of horror of the british car industry which was completely out competed um Mm -hmm. so yeah it's 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 the general that general feeling and this sort of goes back to the conference is what's the empire actually for what's Mm -hmm. it about and of course there was this additional um sort of twist and which sort of goes back to woodrow wilson i guess um you know at versailles um the, the the territories of germany and what was the ottoman empire are divided up between so britain gets iraq um, france gets syria um britain gets um tanganyika just south of kenya uh, and and so on and so on um but these the, at versailles there was this sort of proviso i mean this is an imperial land grab in I mean, this is why the empire reached its maximum terrible thought then because of these sort of x enemy in first world war territories coming in um but there is this proviso put in which is that they are league of nations mandates mm-hmm. that the manifesto is that they have to be run by the french or the british whoever it is they have to be run for the benefit of the indigenous people and mm-hmm. with the express purpose of bringing them to self-government right so the purpose of the empire then is basically as the times are to to shut itself down to liquidate itself that's all yeah. you know they're only there in order so that they can leave i mean it's just a nonsense and of course at the same time you got we were talking about democracy you know only in 1918 was there mass democracy in britain you know that was mm-hmm. when the um all, all men over the age of 21 got the vote and most women um, over the age of thirties, so this is a this is a new thing, but it also throws in, th- asks this question. So hold on, we've got real democracy at home, but we've got autocratic imperialism, you know, in Africa and in Asia. And how is that? How is that compatible in this new world? Right. What I what I appreciated about uh, the way you looked at this is, look, many many people have looked at the geopolitics of the era and tried to shine a light on that, and and that obviously is is here. But you bring in those ideas of the the changing uh, political sociology and literally the rise of anthropology and particularly social anthropology as a field at this time and how the clash of traditional views of race and of whiteness, particularly British superiority, um, with this rise of social anthropology leads to some really interesting discoveries right at this time about the lack of any significant difference between races beyond individual variability and background. Um, exploring that adds a depth to this, that at least some people were realizing, wait a minute, maybe it's not just the strategic foundations of empire and whether the cost-benefit analysis is there, but in fact, there are some some ethical issues involving the very way that we have looked at the colonized before and that was coming out very strongly in in this very year that you're talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, that that's really sort of a thread that's woven all through the book. Um, the uh, ideas about race and these are, these have been challenged long before the First World War, as you said. Um, I mean, there was a famous experiment where people went to so scientists went to uh, an island just off off um, New Guinea and conducted for the first time proper scientific experiments about things like reaction to sound or stimulus um, and sort of about social organisation as well. Um, and you know, previously, they they sort of going back to the end of the 19th century where there was this sort of social Darwinian idea of the hierarchy of races so that at the top were the Anglo-Saxons including the Americans and then sort of going down through sort of southern Mediterranean you know all the way down to Australian Aborigines at the bottom and the idea was that the higher up this hierarchy you are the more sort of intellectually capable you are the more you have emotional restraint uh, and as you go down you become I mean, this is just cl sort of classic, classic racism. You become more like an animal. So therefore, you you don't have the, the self-control or the intellect, but you have superior hearing and you have superior reactions. And these were all tested and they was all shown to be absolutely not true. Um, right. And even, you know, they, even some an analysis of dreams showed that people dreamt in, and interpreted dreams the same way, whether they're living in a hut in Kenya or whether they're in a... Um, a university in Edinburgh or in Harvard or wherever it might be. Um, so the whole idea of hierarchy of race had been scientifically demolished. But of course, these things take a, a long time to filter through. And certainly, um, this this sort of understanding of the, the, the concept of race itself being kind of nonsensical, which we probably would agree on now this this hadn't filtered through to you know the the local resident officer in nigeria or whatever and part of the reason for that is that the idea of white supremacy is absolutely a, a key part of the idea of the empire it justifies it you know why why are we here why are we running these people's lives because we're better than them at doing everything and that's the that's you know that's the excuse to be there and be in charge and ordering people around and if you if you take away the idea that white people are sort of in, inherently superior which was, had been challenged then you know what right does that guy have to be telling that guy to clean his heart or to or to you know look after his cows differently and the mm -hmm. same is true flip side i'm i'm very much in this book wanted to bring in as many voices from the colonized people you know, I didn't want it to be another book about sort of pith-helmeted English people behaving well or badly or whatever. It's really not about that. It's mm -hmm. it's stories from all parts of the empire and all different sides in the power relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and things had really changed. And the, the First World War has an influence on this as well. But um, people had, sort of particularly non-white people, and there's, there's a fantastic quote that Norman Malley liked to use, who became a Jamaican, who became their first prime minister, said that the, the British Empire and the, the, the government depends on the carefully nurtured sense of inferiority yeah. in the governed. Mm -hmm. So the minute the, gov the governed have to feel inferior in order for the whole thing to work, and there's various ways this is done, education being obviously a big a big part of it. Um, but this this was changing, and all over the empire, there would be groups would be getting together to try to um, reinstall some sort of pride in their race or in their local um, culture. I mean, the most famous one is, of course, Marcus Garvey, 
who mm-hmm. is just been released from Tombs Jail in New York on the, on the 10th of September, and he was straight out on the attack again against against the French and British empires. And of course, you know, a lot of the, the terrible things that were happening in, in the United States at that time. Um, but his, his big message was, you can be black and proud. And, you know, African culture is as valid as Western culture. Um, and his magazines, unlike a lot of the other black magazines, would never have adverts for hair straighteners or skin bleachers, all of that stuff. He said, we don't need to be like the white person. We've got to be proud. And this had a massive impact. Um, and lots of other people are investigating those same ideas, setting up groups, whether they're, they could be just literary clubs or societies, um, you know, bringing back indigenous art and literature. And often these would then sort of transmute into anti-imperial nationalist groups. And we can right. see this in 23, this process mm-hmm. happening, which, of course, the next generation would lead to independence for well, India mm-hmm. and then Africa and everywhere else. What surprised me in a positive way, um, and you reminded me of it when you mentioned Marcus Garvey, is whether it's Marcus Garvey who was most focused on uh, West Africa or whether it was uh, Gandhi uh, most focused on the um, in India, but how much they were listening to each other, reading each other, pulling on each other's ideas, uh, citing each other privately or publicly. I think some of that is lost in history because most people think, well, a time before most of us uh, even had parents uh, who were born, in some cases, grandparents who were born. They couldn't communicate back then. It wasn't the same as now where you can send an email or we can talk from across the world instantaneously. But there was a real dialogue going on between many of these people who were realizing these things around the same time, taking action in these various parts of the empire around the same time and creating this I don't know, this multiplier effect that, like you said, within a generation led to independence for the vast majority of these territories. Yeah, there's certainly a, there's certainly a network, um, a sort of anti-colonial network. And, you know, the example of Ireland inspired India, you know, the in, this Indian National Congress inspired similar movements, which were establishing themselves in the early 20s in in West Africa. Um, and as for Garvey, Garvey was a sort of, he was a fantastic showman. Um, and really, one of the most extraordinary characters of, that, that I've ever sort of you know researched and, and come across. And he he was fond of sending telegrams to he sent telegrams to the Irish Republican leader saying on behalf of um, four million Negroes I congratulate you on your and he said he did the same to, yeah. to, to Gandhi as well. Mm-hmm. But he also he also had a newspaper, the Negro World, which had mass circulation. And it turned out it was it was all the, the French colonies, African colonies, all banned it. And in fact. In one, Dahomey, you'd have there'd be a death sentence if you were caught with the Negro world. The British were a little bit more, to start with, anyway, a little bit more relaxed about it. They didn't want to sort of draw attention to him. But his yeah. his his magazine, his newspaper, with, with these really strong messages about standing up for and mm-hmm. and race pride and yeah. and all of this stuff, um, they would turn up in West Africa. They'd turn up in Kenya, and I heard a story of sort of you know one one Kenyan would read would read an article of the Negro world to an attendant 10 people who were illiterate, because most of the people are illiterate. And then they would memorize these articles and then go running off into the bush to, to, to repeat them around, you know, some of the most isolated places. And there was, a, you know, there was Joyce Carey, a novelist who, who I didn't actually feature, I do feature some novelists. Um, you know, he was astonished to find coming across in northern Nigeria, some African peasant 
who'd heard about Marcus Garvey and was really excited that he was, oh. in theory, you know, setting up a, a shipping line, which of course um, wasn't wasn't a success in the end. Am I right that in in 1923, uh, Marcus Garvey was kept from getting a visa to to go to Africa? Yeah, they did. They pulled out all the stops to stop him. I mean, he 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 thought he he was out on bail. You know, he was arrested for mail fraud, and he thought he he thought he was going to get away with it. So he planned this huge tour. Um, I mean, he toured around America endlessly. You know, um, raising money and 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 sort of attacking the particularly the the epidemic of lynching that was happening at the state in the states at this time. Um, but he he planned to go to Africa and and sort of you know help them rise up against the the, the French the colonial overlords. And of course, he had his his long term plan was for Black Americans to relocate en masse yeah. to to Liberia. Um, but but the, the 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 British threw very because he was he was a British subject so in theory he was allowed to go where he liked but they managed to sort of you know pull tweak a few and, and even introduce some new laws to prevent him from from coming and, and in the event he was he was rearrested and convicted before he had a chance mm-hmm. to ever get to his beloved Africa. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. One thing that, that you bring into uh, the story, and it cuts across so many of these different places around the world, is the issue of sport and how the British, consciously or not, were using news about, you know, cricket test matches here and there to to make the empire feel more bound together um, than, than probably was the case. And I think at one point you, you found it was just shocking that at least some local newspapers that were being produced were almost entirely filled with sport news instead of actual what we would call news about uh, politics and other things. Um, talk a little bit about the role of, of sport in that British colonial experience, um, but also why this time was so interesting for it. Well, yeah. Um, one of my one of the books I most enjoyed reading was actually by a, a Frenchman called Albert Damangion, I think he was called, uh, and he wrote a book called about the British Empire, published in September twenty three, uh, and he he found he he'd sort of surveyed the empire and the amount of sport going on. He found baffling. He found it complete, and he he described it as un, unremunerated physical activity. So you're running around and you're not even getting paid. You know, it's this sort of crazy English. But yeah, I mean, there it's, and again, it's, I think it's a bit more nuanced. I think sport was used to, um, to impress, I, I guess. And I think 
sports were very sports were introduced i mean look at football football for instance which is introduced across the empire it became really popular people loved playing particularly working class people uh, and they were they were genuinely grateful for this being being introduced and the rules and the t- teams established um and the same with cricket i mean it's cricket was considered the grand imperial game because in theory it has the sort of codes of sort of fair play and and it would teach it would teach the Asians fair play and and general it's back to this sort of general manliness that that's how the British saw themselves um and but and sometimes it did actually it was a cross-cultural vehicle so you know British would play hockey with Sikhs in India as a team in a way that they had no other sort of uh, sort of contact on but a sort the of colonized if i understand right in most places the colonized could could perhaps play with them but they could not go into the same locker room is that right that was the case in some places there were still segregated teams and segregated facilities but not as not very often not universally and and when 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 incidents like did occur there was there was outrage on all sides um mm-hmm. so it really was it really was a way to um for you know for for british people and not just british people for for tamils and um sinhalese in sri lanka to 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 sort of play together you know it brought it brought communities together and in in one way it was sort of flattering that flattering to the british that they that people loved these sports so much and then sort of imitated them if you like but at the same time it was an arena for you know someone who you know, was maybe maybe a junior clerk to get one over on his boss by 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 scoring a goal against him, or you know, it, so it was a to an extent a level playing field to use the sort of rather apt metaphor. Actually, um, there are a couple of uh, very m- most of the characters uh, in in this most recent study are people that even uh, generally well educated readers will not have heard of. You know, these are people who happen to be commissioners or or governors of a territory in a time that is, uh, if not forgotten, certainly understudied. But you do have some prominent figures here. Uh, you do mention Churchill, who I believe took the responsibility for the colonies in 1921 or 22. Um, but for me, one that really struck out and the depth in which you explored uh, the impact of the experience on him was uh, the author who would write under the name George Orwell. Um, could you talk a little bit about George Orwell's experience in Burma at this time and what it what it said to you? Yeah, I didn't, as you say, I didn't want the book to be about sort of a top-down great man thing. I wanted people from all walks of life, um, recognisably human people. I mean, the book's about people and stories. Uh, and there are some people that no one will have ever heard of, but they, it's an amazing story, or yeah. there will be some people. And George Orwell is a sort of a particularly interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, he went out to, to Burma in November 22. He sailed from Liverpool. In September 23, he was a policeman in the north of the country uh and he he had had he went to eton school as sort of the and and was a con- self-confessed sort of snob and a prig when he when he first went out to burma uh, and burma was probably probably the place where the british were hated more than anywhere else in the entire empire uh, and this was for, for lots of reasons but mainly because the british had entirely dismantled the social structure of the country they'd, they'd got rid of the king and the elaborate sort of structure around around the mon- monasteries and monks all of and the, the society was in ruins and the response to this was a massive crime wave it was the most 
um, out of control, lawless place with murders happening all over the place. Um, so not a, not a great place to be a young policeman arriving, you know, very green. Uh, and he was he was absolutely appalled by what he um, discovered, in, particularly in terms of the sort of business exploitation of. Um, yeah. the, the the huge resources of Burma were being were being absolutely stripped, mainly by Scottish companies. Um, but also, he 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 found himself in this sort of what, what a Burmese histor- historian called it this sort of a wall of hatred, um, very very racial as well between the Burmese and the British. Uh, and the Burmese they hated the Indians as well that the British had brought in in huge numbers. Um, and they, it was you know, and they were really really. Um, absolutely desperate to sort of to get rid of the British in any way possible, and Orwell found himself actually sometimes saying, "I, I just wanted to put my bayonet into the into the the stomach of this this truculent priest because he could just feel the hatred." Um, and of course, it, it it changed him from, as I said, a, a, a sort of priggish young man into um, you know George Orwell that we know as a, obviously a famous campaigner for the weak and the the people who find themselves at the bottom of the pile, um, but even his story is, is is nuanced. You know, he he produced a novel from which actually he started writing in Burma when he was still there. He left in he left in twenty four, um, and called Burmese Days. And it's a very strange thing because you know he he claims to be anti imperialist and claims to be anti racist, but all of the the Burmese characters are dreadful. They're, and they're all called right. Yellow the whole time. Um, right. You know, it's. It, it, it's complicated, very stereotypical, um, and and it did it need not have been that way because he obviously had a depth in other writings that showed he could he could move beyond that. Yeah, well, he's very he's very he's obviously a, a, a you know great essayist as well as as well as writing his novels, um, and he has like like a lot of the, the the people on the left in Britain, he had very mixed feelings about the empire. He said, "Well, we don't really want it to, to, to sort of you know, and if we if we do just sort of." give it away won't other won't other worse countries like france or holland or america come in and take over um you know and he you know he people still stuck to the idea that the um the 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 colonized were not ready for self-government that they needed you know another generations more of education and of development and of civilizing before you know the british could to, to, could could leave, and so they had a duty to stay. That was how they felt. Absolutely. Well, you in in this new book, one fine day, you don't talk that much about Jamaica, but that's fair because in recent years you've published a whole book about the British experience in Jamaica, using the lens of Ian Fleming and his Golden Eye residence there. I'm hoping we can spend a few minutes before we go chatting about that as well, and what it is that you found most fascinating about Fleming's experience in Jamaica and how it, how his interactions there did shed light on his creation of and uh, growth of James Bond such that there was some uh, during the novels that he wrote. Yeah, I was, this, this started many years ago. I'd written a book called The Sugar Baron. So I was the sort of mm-hmm. quite well-known Caribbean historian here, here in the UK. And I was approached by Chris Blackwell, Island Records, who um, is probably well-known to your listeners, um, you know, the, the 
promoter of Bob Marley, amongst many others. Uh, and he he's he's he bought Fleming's old house, and it's now a sort of luxury hotel. And he was he was he wanted a he was going to do a sort of nice glossy book, and wanted some sort of text wrapped around the pictures. So he said, "Oh, can you do this?" I said, "Yeah, sure." Um, and then I kind of looked at it a bit more closely, and I read the read all the novels which I'd never read before, um, and sort of studied his. I didn't you know I hadn't realised that all of the James Bond novels were actually written in Jamaica. Right. And when you read them, suddenly Jamaica's everywhere. I mean, not just in the ones, the three or four that are set there, but just in the whole atmosphere of Jamaica. And also, really interestingly, the, the idea of James Bond as an imperial hero. You know, he, he's, he's published, this is the 1950s. The empire is, is collapsing. Um, and, but in, in the figure of James Bond, Britain can still somehow project power across the world in the way that it used to be able to do in in the the good old days of you know the imperial height um so he's a sort of consolation figure for the british readers reading public so he's he's still he's still britain still got it in the in the in the form of james bond um and then i sort of looked at the context in jamaica so it's a really fascinating point in jamaican history because when fleming first went there in the in, right after the end of the second world war it was a real throwback it could have been a hundred years before it was a really yeah. backward really backward yeah, very um very undeveloped very sort of um old-fashioned relations so anyone white instantly had respect and status for instance and he loved that he fleming who was a terrible terrible right winger he loved that um but then it, it changes it and you can see it changing in the books as well as they as they progress and you know, like elsewhere, we talked about earlier in the empire in the twenties. You know, people start to start to sort of question the, um, you know, this white white superiority, and of course, you know, that there's black leadership from people like you know Bustamante and so on, and the trade unions, and and you can see and the, and you can see the British confidence sort of crumbling and cracking uh, as you, it moves towards. And then by the time Doctor No is filmed in Jamaica in sixty two, it's independent. So it's gone on this really fast sort of curve away from what Fleming originally liked about it into into the the, the modern world. And there's a, lots of other ways in which the Jamaica influences the books. And I just thought it was a fascinating place and quite a nice place to go and research. Yeah, I'm. You you have mm. turned me on to that idea, which is something I'd never thought of before, but. It's it's very funny your descriptions of the Golden Eye residence when he first built it. I mean, it's not Spartan, but it's it's not luxurious. It's it's something that has a unique physical place, which you could see then evoke some of the things in the novels regarding the beach and its access. Um, but it doesn't seem as if it's a a glorious experience to be there. But the history that's there and the way it's been developed, you've seen it recently. Is this a place that people who have the means should try to see? Um, I think so. I mean, you're right that the original house was built in a very austere style. Um, mm -hmm. Noel Coward, who was a neighbour, um, said it looked like a sort of medical clinic, and it should be golden eyed, yeah. nose and throat. And it's and it and it was. But I mean, the beach is the beach is absolutely stunning. And you go down these little steps to it, and then and that's where Fleming spent so much of his time. He'd be out snorkeling or diving, um, and you know, to think of all of those underwater scenes in in the Bond books and films, they're all inspired by his his time on the on the Golden Eye Reef. Um, but it was also because Jamaica was changing as well as I, I talked about the sort of moving towards independence. It was it was the beginning of the jet age. So you were getting Errol Flynn and all the Hollywood stars were flying in. And it, it was, 
you know, big, very fancy hotels were being built. And it is that touristy world that Bond moves in of the of the super rich and the and the jetting jetting away all, all over the place. But the actual but the actual house is still. I mean, I actually got to stay there, which was great. And mm. it's been it's been done up nicely. You've got these amazing outdoor showers, and then there's a new beach that's being constructed a little bit away down the coast with lots of very nice villas and so on. Um, and it's got a sort of it's got a Chris Blackwell vibe. It's got a reggae vibe. It's got mm. you know there's a lot of you know a lot of music going on. Um, so I don't know whether Fleming actually Fleming did like. West Indian music. He like he actually really liked Jamaicans, black Jamaicans, in the way that he's he's incredibly rude about every other unless you're an Anglo-Saxon Briton in the books. He's so rude about you. All the Chinese, you know, the Germans, the Chinese, the Americans. You know, oh, yeah. he, he thought the Americans were a terribly you know bad idea for the people who were taking over the world. Um, but but black Jamaicans, he has a lot. Of, I mean, it's patronising and it's slightly paternalistic. Um, but um, interesting nonetheless. But I, I would recommend here. going there. But you'd have to probably, it, you know, it's not cheap. It's no, not cheap. No. I would never stay there. Be able to stay there under my own steam, sadly, <laughs> ever. Unless unless you manage to sell lots of this book for me. Well, I I did. I did love. I did love Goldeneye for that, which is I I got a better understanding of the um, not so subtle disdain towards Americans that comes through in the novels. Uh, Felix Leiter has some positive qualities uh, in, in the novels, but generally the attitude towards Americans is, uh, is quite negative. And a bit of the experience of the development of Jamaica during his time there explained it because of how he felt about Jamaicans and how he felt Americans were, were treating this place almost as a tourist colony of their own. Uh, disregarding the fact that in, in some ways he was a tourist himself, even though it was part of the empire when he went. But it was a, a fascinating read, and I do recommend it to anybody who's interested either in spy fiction overall and uh, Fleming in particular, but also someone wanting to get a different perspective on Jamaica. And maybe that will be their gateway drug into the Sugar Barons and some of some of your other work. Um, but the new book is One Fine Day, Britain's Empire on the Brink, September 29th, 1923. And I appreciate the fact of you talking so much to us about it. But we do close here by reaching into our vaunted chatterbox and asking you a very different question. And today, that question is, what book or books are on your nightstand or on your Audible or Kindle list of books coming up? Um, I'm actually still working my way through um, The Earth Transformed by Peter Frankopan. Oh, um, he was he's he's a friend, um, and he wrote an amazing success called The Silk Roads, which is a sort of global history, slightly spun round to to be centred on Asia rather than the traditional centering on Europe and the United States. Yeah. Um, and his his new one is about it's a sort of ecological history of the world going back into sort of you know the deepest past. Um, where, where sort of climate events have occurred to wipe out or to promotes different sort of types of living creature and it's an, it's amazing it's very it's very long um yeah. but i'm but i'm um really enjoying that uh but i tend to have i tend to have lots and lots of books on the go um and some of them are, 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 are sort of for work they're sort of researching around around mm -hmm. sort of my projects um but i have a i have a new book club um, which no one, no one wanted me to be, uh, join a book club because writers, they say you can't ask a writer because they'll just go on and on and on and think, <laughs> and think they know it all, which There's I probably do a bit. But we only read, we only read novels in translation. Oh, fascinating. 
So we've come. So we've just finished an Angolan one, and mm-hmm. um, we're currently um, reading one from Sri Lanka, which I'm very much enjoying. Which was actually shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And, and what um, is that book? So we can link to that as well. It's called A Passage North. A Passage North. Good. And it's very, very interesting about the sort of um, relationship between Sri Lanka and India. And it's also a beautifully written novel. So I'm really enjoying that because otherwise... We don't get enough recommendations of Sri Lankan novels. So this is a good one that we can put out there and hope somebody takes something away from. Uh, and what a great idea to have a book club centered in that way. It, it does make it more more uh, compelling for people who might otherwise not find the time for such an activity. Yeah, we're quite a small group, but we have a, one of our one of our members is Sri Lankan, one is American, one is German, mm. one is Israeli, and then there's me. Mm. So we're quite a mixture already. So we bring in stuff, I Indeed. hope, from different different places. And you mentioned you're reading some uh, research for potential new projects. Anything you want to give us a preview of things that you're you're exploring, possibly writing about next? Um, well, I've actually just um, agreed with my editor what the next book will be, and he wants it January twenty twenty five. Oh, um, which is fair. soon because this yeah. book, One Fine Day, took me from commission to publication eight years, um, because it's it's covers a lot of you know. It, it's a global history and any if you ask anyone who writes global history they say don't write global history because it's a lot <laughs> a lot of research um right so yeah so this is this is going to be a short one and i can't really say what it is because it's such a good idea i don't want anyone oh, wonderful. to jump you don't in. want anyone to well they won't have time to steal it that's the good news is because producing almost any book in that period of time um any any nonfiction is is extremely difficult if it involves research, but perhaps perhaps the next one need not be uh, almost six hundred pages like one fine day. It might end up being a bit shorter, uh, especially if your editor is concerned about getting it out quickly. Yes, I'm sure. It, I hope it will be, but I tend to wonderful. Yeah, I, I tend to research to, to the limit of you know possibility. Yes. That's my that's my thing. I yes. do. Well, we look forward to it, whatever it is, based on your previous work. I'm, I'm sure it will be a fascinating read as well. Matthew Parker, thanks for spending time with us here on Chatter. David, it's been my pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.